Hey, before you start this episode, it'll make more sense if you've listened from the beginning of this season. So you might want to do that now if you haven't. Oh, and in this episode, there is a swear word or two. Thanks. After Keith Jackson got arrested in September 1989 for selling crack in the park in front of the White House, he was immediately locked up while he waited for his trial. The trial began that December. I've never forgotten it. Tracy Thompson, the woman we heard from a couple episodes ago, the one who watched Bush's baggie of crack speech during her beach getaway in South Carolina, she was a reporter for the Washington Post, and her beat was the federal courts, which meant she was assigned to cover Keith Jackson's trial. That was almost 30 years ago, but she says she still thinks about Keith. I wonder what happened to him. I think about what a farce that trial was and how unfair that whole situation was. At the time when Tracy was covering the trial, it was the farcical parts that first caught her attention, caught everyone's attention. Not just the story of how Keith Jackson didn't know where the White House was when DEA agents tried to lure him there. But in the trial, more details came out about the bungling that happened once they got him to the White House. There was the wire the undercover DEA agent was wearing. It crapped out and recorded nothing. And then there was the problem of the video surveillance footage. A DEA guy was supposed to hide in the park and videotape the crack deal to get visual proof that Keith Jackson was selling the crack. But when the tape got played during the trial, there was no actual footage of the sale. First, you see a shot of the car that presumably Keith is about to get out of. But then... This homeless woman kind of rears up from the bottom of the screen... And then all you can see on the, the film is this is pavement and the sound of rapid footsteps, you know, because she's chasing this DEA agent off. I've seen some of this video in an old news clip from the time, and it's a mess. The angry woman pops into the frame. After that, it's just blurry ground and upside-down sky. The agent said this homeless woman attacked him, shouting, don't take my photo. I remember watching that in the trial, and everybody in the courtroom cracked up when, you know, all you're seeing is this pavement and this agent's feet going bum, 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 you know, trying to get away from this homeless lady who was chasing him. It sounds like a script from Veep. Or the Keystone Cops, which is what the judge presiding over the case said when the video played at trial, after he finished laughing. So, yeah, farce seemed like a good word for the trial at the time. We thought it was kind of weird and funny didn't occur to me then how that little piece of political theater would really impact one person's life. Welcome back to The Uncertain Hour, where the things we fight the most about are the things we know the least about. I'm Chrissy Clark, senior correspondent for Marketplace's Wealth and Poverty Desk. As you know, this season, we're tackling drugs, drug epidemics, and how they ever end. And on this episode, I'm going to finish telling you the story of what happened to Keith Jackson, the teenager who got charged with selling crack in front of the White House. We're going to hear what happened to lots of people like him across the country, young men and women of color who became the target of the heightened war on drugs in the 80s and 90s. And we're going to hear what happened to all that crack that prompted the war on drugs, that was flooding the streets of neighborhoods like Keith's. Why did it start to disappear? In the end, Keith Jackson did not get convicted for the crack sale in front of the White House. Maybe it was the lack of video evidence, 
maybe the jury just felt like the whole way it was set up by the DEA for the president's speech kind of tainted it. But the jury did convict Keith of selling crack three other times to undercover agents in the months leading up to the White House deal. Two of the sales happened within 1,000 feet of a high school, which Tracy Thompson, the reporter who covered the trial for The Washington Post, says was a big deal at the time. Because we were going to keep drugs out of our schools. Though, as Keith's attorney pointed out, the decision to sell crack in front of a school was, like the White House buy, not something Keith organically decided. The undercover DEA agents who were buying from him, they picked a spot near a school as a meeting place. The DEA said they'd been waiting to arrest him, hoping he could lead them to his suppliers, bigger drug dealers of the chain. That never happened. Maybe because Keith? He was super low level. A street dealer. And the amounts Keith sold, they were not the stuff of drug kingpins. Two of the charges were for selling at least five grams of crack, a little more than a teaspoon's worth. The third was for selling at least 50 grams of crack, about three and a half tablespoons. Keith had no prior criminal record. Tracy says watching Keith during the trial... He looked like a scared kid. He looked like a scared kid. But the judge didn't have much choice when it came time to sentence Keith. The federal mandatory minimum sentencing laws that Republicans and Democrats in Congress had passed a few years before in 1986, they set up strict formulas for how much time Keith would get. Based on the amounts of crack he sold, his sentence came out to 10 years in prison. When the judge handed down the sentence, he told Keith he seemed like a nice young man who'd been out of control for a period of time. He also told Keith he thought a 10-year sentence was too harsh. He apologized to him, and he told him, I don't have any discretion here. This is what the law says I have to do. The judge actually suggested that Keith make a personal appeal to President Bush. He used you in the sense of making a big drug speech, the judge said. But he's a decent man. Maybe he can find a way to reduce at least some of that sentence. There's no record anything came of the judge's suggestion. The only public comment Bush ever made about the teenager the DEA lured to the park in front of the White House to buy crack for his speech was back at that tree farm in Maine, right after he'd given his speech. And he said this. A man was busted in front of the White House, and I cannot feel sorry for him. I'm sorry they ought not to be peddling these insidious drugs that ruin the children in this country. And I don't care where it is, I'm glad that the DEA and everybody else is going after him with a renewed vigor. When Bush was pressed further, he said, I don't understand. Does someone have some advocates here for this drug guy? Tracy Thompson, the reporter who was at the trial, says the day Keith was sentenced. Later on, I heard that when they put him back in the holding cell that he just completely lost it and he was crying and hysterical and threw himself on the floor of the cell and they were worried he was going to hurt himself and they eventually had to come in and put him in a straitjacket. Keith's arrest, his trial, his sentencing... They got national media attention, got covered by people like Tracy Thompson at the Washington Post, because of the crazy circumstances that happened to surround Keith's case. The bizarre story behind Bush's baggie of crack speech, the setup. But what might be more important about Keith Jackson's story are the ordinary parts. 
a young man of color from a poor neighborhood was convicted of a nonviolent, low-level drug offense. He was put in prison for a long time. He was put there because of things like mandatory minimums and a zero-tolerance policy towards drugs that focused on law enforcement. Here are some numbers to consider. Since 1986, when Congress established mandatory minimum sentences for drugs, the number of people in federal prison has almost quadrupled. I should point out that federal prison is just a small slice of the overall U.S. prison population. But when it comes to federal prison, nearly half of all inmates are in for drug crimes. And about 75% of them are Black or Hispanic. The most common drug charges in federal prison these days are for low-level sales. And a report from a few years ago by the U.S. Department of Justice found that in 2012, the majority of people who were in federal prison for crack, like Keith Jackson, got at least 10 years in prison. Tracy Thompson says covering the federal courts 30 years ago during Keith Jackson's trial, when these even tougher-on-drugs policies had only recently been put in place— you could just start to see the shape of things to come. At that time, they were just funneling a million of these things through the federal courts. It was like this flood of drug cases because these were quick and easy wins for the prosecution. They could make a big show of putting these guys away. And there were plenty of people who thought putting those guys away made sense. Plenty of people who still do. Tracy remembers hearing a lot of comments back then along the lines of, you do the crime, you do the time. There would be some opinion expressed of, well, you know, if they don't want to get sent to prison for 10 years for dealing crack, maybe they shouldn't deal crack. But there was no context for that, you know. You weren't hearing about these cases in terms of, here's somebody who got caught with a little bitty bag of crack, you know, something the size of your left molar, they went to prison for 10 years, and if we keep this up, we're going to put a generation of young black men in prison. Keith Jackson was released from prison in 1998. I spent months trying to reach him to see what's happened since. I tried old numbers. I sent him letters. Eventually, I did talk to some of his family, found out he has a job in an office, but that was about it. And then Keith called me one night to say he didn't want to be interviewed. He wants to move on with his life. Understandable. But there are so many Keith Jacksons out there, or I should say in there, so many young men of color charged with low-level drug sales and put behind bars for a very long time. And by now, we know the basic contours of many of their stories. It's often referred to as mass incarceration. But that mass was made of hundreds of thousands of individual moments. When mandatory minimums started taking effect during the height of the war on drugs in the 80s and 90s, individual people had to reckon with the personal toll of the hefty sentence crashing down on them, often for small amounts of crack. And to get a sense of what a long prison sentence for a low-level drug crime can do to someone, I talked to this man. My name is Marcus Boyd. Middle name is Dwayne. Marcus grew up in East St. Louis, Illinois. Like Northeast Washington, D.C., where Keith Jackson grew up, it was a pretty rough part of town. It's not, you know, it's no cakewalk for us. Money, everybody, was, you know, needed a handout. So, you know, I was trying to cut grass, wash a car, whatever hustle I can get to make a couple dollars just to get by. He worked at fast food restaurants as a janitor and occasionally sold a little crack. 
Marcus says he was far from a big-time dealer. Says he'd usually make 30 or $40 off a sale. The little petty stuff that I was doing, it just kept me afloat from not being homeless. That's about it. But when he was 23, outside of Kmart, he sold some crack to a friend of a friend who turned out to be a confidential informant. And the full arsenal of the law came down on him. They had a whole task force, a drug task force. Mm, it was about four or five different cars. I couldn't believe all they had done all that for me because I wasn't nobody. I, was, I mean, I wasn't even a, a factor, you know what I mean? So it, for them to do all this just to get me, it was just really amazing to me. He was even more amazed when he found out his sentence. Like Keith Jackson's, it was based on mandatory minimums. He was a first-time offender, aside for some stuff on his record related to driving with a suspended license. But he was sentenced to 14 years and one month in federal prison for selling 37 grams of crack, or about two and a half tablespoons worth. Oh, I couldn't believe it. I just was in shock. I knew I had messed up, but never to the point of that. I never knew that I would be facing that kind of time until the day I went in and the judge sentenced me. I mean, it was the worst of the worst. I mean, I mean, I never thought that I would see the streets again. I couldn't even, I couldn't even fathom it. Marcus wound up serving 10 years of his 14-year sentence. He was released early after a federal commission lowered penalties for crack offenses to reduce, slightly, the sentencing disparity between crack and powder cocaine. But in those 10 years, Marcus says the things he lost when he was locked up, they're hard to count. The hardest part I could say was just, mm, it's just that I'm so unproductive in there. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, I don't have anything that's going to benefit anybody while I'm in here. Just that feeling of wasting his life. That's what Marcus says hurt him the most. And hurt his family. Something he didn't realize the full weight of until he got out and moved back to the St. Louis area. He was home at his house there when I talked to him. He's tried to reconnect with his two kids, who were five and seven when he got locked up. By the time he was released, they were teenagers. He had another daughter once he was released. She's six now. And he says every moment he spends with her puts in high relief what he missed with his first two kids. You know, just the small things, you know, watching them at the bus stop, leave in the morning and missing them going to school when they first, like say, when he got on the football team. Every aspect, to watch a movie with my daughter while she out of school, just grab the remote, lay on the carpet and watch TV till you fall asleep. Marcus doesn't have much of a relationship with his older kids now. He says prison destroyed that part of his family. Right now, we don't speak. Everybody's kind of separated, you know. There's no unity no more. You know, the kids, you know, they, you don't have that bond no more when the person's been gone. So much happens over the years, you know, you can't get that back. You would never be able to fix it. It's just too much. And then there are the practical things. It's been hard to get a job. He cut hair in prison, but with a felony on his record, it's taken him years since he was out to get all the paperwork he needs for his barber's license. And Marcus says his experience going to prison for a long time for a small amount of drugs, it's super common in his circles. Yeah, like how many people how many people do you think you know who who've had a similar experience? No, I've got I know at least about 20 or better. That's just 
I just called them off right offhand. Buddies who've done 10 years, and you know, they weren't making no lot of money or make, moving nothing. They was just in the backyard of their house, playing with some dogs and making a couple bucks here and there through the week. You know, and for them to get 12, 15 years, that's just, you know, kind of harsh there. Which brings us back to Keith Jackson and the community that okay. lost him. If you guys want to just buy your heads. Um, mm-hmm. Well, gracious and merciful Lord, we thank you for this day, for this gathering, for this mini reunion of Spingon family and friends, Lord. Now we ask that you would bless this food. Keep At the mini reunion of students and teachers of Spingarn High School, where Keith Jackson went, people bowed their heads and said grace before they dug into the potluck. Everyone I talked to over the turkey burgers and deviled eggs had a story about how zero-tolerance drug policies and mandatory minimum sentences had affected them. One form it takes is in the people that are missing from their reunions and mini-reunions, Keith Jackson and lots of others. It was typical to see someone in our neighborhood, and then the next week you're like, hey, what happened to such and such? That's David Magruder again, Keith Jackson's classmate on the basketball team. He says when someone disappeared... Odds were good they'd gone to prison. A study of police records in D.C. from the late 80s showed that about 20% of young Black men in the district, ages 18 to 22, had been charged with a drug crime. And suddenly, a conviction for one of those crimes could mean serious prison time. We were like, where is this coming from? Keith's classmate, Carrie Bridges, the one whose family struggled with crack addiction, she says when she found out Keith had been sentenced to 10 years in federal prison for selling what amounted to about three and a half tablespoons of crack over the course of a few months, she felt blindsided. Mandatory minimums were still new, not really on people's radar. Carrie had heard of people getting six months or so for selling a little crack. And then all of a sudden those sentences became like 10 years. It, it wasn't fair. Like, that's a load of BS. Load of BS. Carrie felt like Keith was a scapegoat for the war on drugs. Poor Keith. You were still a kid. And you pretty much ruined his life. And was it worth it? Was it worth it? The irony is that when crack first started showing up in neighborhoods like Carrie's, there were plenty of people who wanted stiffer law enforcement to help guard against the violence that came along with an underground crack market. Carrie says a lot of folks felt like the police were neglecting them. There were crack houses where the house was deemed where you would purchase crack. Like, it was someone's home, and you would go in there and you would buy crack, and everybody knew that was a crack house. You know, it was just, it was so, it was just known. And just having a police officer on the corner could have shut that house down. But when the police did finally come, the Spin Garden students I talked to say often it did not make things better. Busts of one drug-dealing ring would create a power vacuum that would lead to bloody turf wars. Stiff sentences for drug offenses only gave drug dealers more incentive to intimidate or punish potential informants. John C. Butler, another Spingarn grad, says it all mixed together to create this general fear spread over their lives that they might get caught in the crossfire. You had neighborhoods right around the corner, you know, beefing with each other. And it's, it was nothing for us to hear gunshots, hit on the floor, wait till the coast is clear, you know, get up. And it, I mean, it was just it was just an everyday thing. And just it's, it's to God be the glory that we survived. 
And then there was the fact that with so much police presence, it could be easy to get treated like a suspect. You were kind of being watched for every little thing. Here's Spingarn grad David Magruder again. To, to be a kid walking to junior high school and a cop tells you to get into their squad car because you look suspicious. Where are you going? Um, I'm going to school. No, you're not. Sir, I have a book bag on. How suspicious is that? I'm in line with this school that I'm going to. Why must I get in your car? And, the, and then the constant threats, you know. They have the, the billy clubs. And in a moment's notice, you know you're at their mercy and that something tragic could happen. Because this person is, is interrogating a 13-year-old going to junior high school. Unfortunately, it was something we were used to. It leads many people to lose trust and faith in the law. That's Leroy Lewis. He taught government and journalism when Keith Jackson was a student at Spingarden High School. He says as the war on drugs amped up in the late 80s, he watched his students react. He watched them start to draw certain conclusions as they looked at the world around them and how it seemed to work. The war on drugs was never really the war on drugs. It was the war on us. And unfortunately, that's, that's how many people felt uh, during the Bush speech and during his little uh, drama with the bag of crack. And even with the, uh, the arrest of Keith Jackson, it was just a betrayal and it was just uh, a signal. Look out, we're coming after you and we're coming in your communities and we're going to just decimate you. And Leroy says when he and many people at Spingarn found out how long Keith had been sentenced to prison, 10 years, more than half his life. It was an atrocity to us. I mean, that's, that's a kid. Um, and... And that's a kid who is doing low-level drug sales, and I don't condone that sort of thing. But you're not going to just solve the drug problem in America arresting low-level kids on the street. The first time I talked to Leroy, I mentioned that I was also going to be talking to some of the men who'd worked in the Bush administration, who'd worked on the baggie of crack speech that Keith Jackson indirectly got caught up in. In fact, I was going to be talking to one of them later that day. Just wondering, is there anything you'd like me to ask him on, you, on your behalf? Maybe you should ask, how fair did he think that that situation was to Keith Jackson and to all of the other young people that were directly affected negatively by the consequences of what the president did and said? I did ask that question. That's coming up after the break. So that question about whether what happened to Keith Jackson was fair, whether what happened to other young people affected by Bush's harsh anti-drug policies was fair, I put that question to Bush speechwriter Mark Davis. He's the guy who came up with the idea of using the baggie of crack as a prop. I was talking actually to a, a former teacher of Keith Jackson's, and 
there was a real sense of betrayal among his classmates, among his teachers. I mean, they didn't endorse drug selling, but they really felt like this was a kid who made a mistake. And one teacher who I spoke to, he was angry with with you, with with the speechwriters who 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 sort of began all of this. And he said, you know, you guys were part of the problem. And he wanted to to ask you, how fair do you think a, that situation was to someone like Keith Jackson? Well, I don't think it was fair at all. And it wasn't the situation that the speechwriters envisioned. Um, but I do agree. Uh, we, we've uh, do have to quit doing what we're doing. We've done it for three decades now, and it's not working. It's not uh, rehabilitating communities. It's not rehabilitating youth. And it's just not the way to go. Other people from the Bush administration see it differently. I talked to Ed McNally. He also worked on the Baggy of Crack speech, and he was a federal drug prosecutor. When I asked him if he thinks, in retrospect, the speech and the war on drugs it was promoting were fair to people like Keith Jackson, he told me it's complicated. Well, Chrissy, I I would love to believe that every single man and woman who's been convicted of a crime in the history of our country and done jail time for it was convicted in a fair and just system, but I'm not naive enough to think that's the case. Our country is replete with examples of injustice, of criminals who were incarcerated for a very long time based on something like mandatory minimums, where almost any fair viewer of it would say it was disproportionate. So that's a reality. And then Ed made this analogy between the war on drugs and other kinds of wars. I know that, you know, when America fights wars overseas, some of the deaths will be at the hands of friendly fire, Americans killed by Americans. Um, And it's not acceptable to anyone, but I don't think there's been uh, a war yet where we've been able to avoid any Americans dying from friendly fire. So it's a really tragic, unacceptable, and unwelcome reality. I don't think collateral damage is acceptable. Well, it may be unavoidable, it sounds like you're saying. That may be a reality as well. But if Keith Jackson, Marcus Boyd, and potentially hundreds of thousands of others, became, as Ed McNally called it, collateral damage, caught by friendly fire in the war on drugs. Ed also wanted to make sure to point out, in his mind, it wasn't all in vain. He reminded me of how bad things were when crack was at its height. It destroyed whole communities. Uh, It was block after block and whole neighborhoods taken over by corrupt crack gangs, people hid in their houses. People did not come out of their houses uh, because the streets were owned by those who were running the drug operations. And it was a really toxic combination of drugs, addiction, enormous amounts of money, uh, violent weapons, very high-powered weapons. A lot of those realities have changed, Ed told me. And he credits the kinds of tough-on-drug-crimes policies that came out of the Bush administration he worked for. There are many key elements of the so-called war on drugs that were successful in bringing about that result. And if you go to some of the neighborhoods that were hit hardest by the crack epidemic in the 80s and 90s, it does look like the war on drugs, or at least the war on crack, did have some success. The neighborhood Keith Jackson lived in, that used to be so overrun with crack, using and selling, 
I went there recently. It's about four miles east of the White House in Washington, D.C. Lots of trees, narrow streets. Lots of brick row houses, side by side. And it's changed a lot since 1989. I was standing in front of Keith's old house, looking at it, when a guy rolled by on his bicycle. He saw the house I was looking at, and he told me, that used to be my family's house. We we owned that house right there, 1715. His grandfather's house. Crazy, I thought. I told him I was researching a story about someone who used to live there, Keith Jackson. And he looked at me. That's my uncle. Keith Jackson was his uncle. This was weird. Oh, really? Oh, wow. At first I didn't believe it, but it checked out. I was reading about the... Yeah, Yeah, with the White House and stuff. Yeah. This guy's name was Keith, too. Keith Johnson. He didn't want to talk much about his uncle, except to say he was doing fine. But he told me that back when crack was a bigger problem here, teenagers who sold a few grams were scapegoats. Law enforcement should have been going after bigger fish. We don't have boats, we don't have planes, we don't have none of that. So however the shit getting over here, it's getting over here. We ain't getting it over here, so everybody make it seem like we, like it's us. It ain't just us. Keith Jackson's nephew, Keith Johnson, has lived here all his life. And he says it's really different than when he was a kid in the 90s. Especially the crack, the using, the selling, and the violence that sprang up around it. They just aren't so much of a thing as they were back then. The streets feel safer, he said. Kids can come out and play now. Back then, we couldn't come out and play. We used to have to go in the house early. Yeah, when you were a little kid? Yeah. Because why? It was, it was dangerous. But now it's pretty, it's pretty good. Across D.C. and across the country, things have gotten better when it comes to crack and the violence that surrounded it. But the real question, right, is whether the war on drugs, the steep sentences, the tougher punishments, whether that was what made things better. Did it help get crack off the street? Did it deter people from selling drugs? Did it help end the crack epidemic that hurt a lot of the families that lived around here in neighborhoods like it? Turns out, there's no good evidence showing that it did. There's no evidence. I mean, just to take away good. There's no evidence. Peter Reuter is an economist and a professor of criminology at the University of Maryland. He's been studying tough-on-drug crimes policies for decades and how they affect the price and the supply of drugs on the street. He's kind of the granddaddy of this kind of research. And he explained to me, law enforcement has basically two main goals when it comes to drugs. One is about morality, punishing people for doing things that we as a society see as bad. But the other goal of law enforcement, Peter says, is much more practical and economic. And it all comes back to thinking about markets for drugs like any other kind of market. That is, ruled by the forces of supply and demand. Law enforcement, Peter says, is an effort to constrict supply. Constrict the supply of drugs to make drug prices go up because more expensive drugs should... Presumably reduce demand. The theory goes that tough law enforcement and steeper sentences for drugs should help drive up the price of drugs by upping the chances of getting arrested and going to prison. If the probability of getting arrested and going to prison goes up, then in the standard economic model, there'll be some people who will decide not to sell drugs at the current price, because the compensation they get is not worth that additional risk. 
that may lead to an increase in price. In other words, theoretically, if stiffer law enforcement makes it riskier for drug dealers to deal drugs, some people will stop dealing altogether. And the people who still do deal will compensate for that heightened risk by charging a higher price for their drugs. And if drug prices go up... That, that means that consumption will go down. At least, that's the big theory. And in its simplest form, this model seems to work. Just outlawing any given drug does likely reduce its supply and increase its price. But Peter says as much as he loves the supply and demand theories that drive this model, there's just not evidence to show that in the real world, stiffer and stiffer law enforcement or sentencing makes much more of a dent in reducing the drug supply or increasing the price. I have used this model over a very long career, and I would very much like it if there was some evidence that it was correct. Uh, In fact, what is striking is how little evidence there is for it. And in fact, there's some very striking evidence against this model that drug policy researchers have been banging their heads against for the last few years. Namely, that if you look at the 80s and 90s, when the war on drugs was ramping up and dealers were more likely to get locked up, the price of crack did not go up. In fact, it went in the exact opposite direction. The price? The price fell substantially. Hmm. Not what we were going for. (laughs) Not, Not indeed what law enforcement intended or what models would have predicted. Just to pause on this for a moment, in the 80s and 90s, when we were intensifying the war on crack, the price of crack was falling, meaning it was getting easier to buy, and meaning that the higher risks of getting locked up for selling crack that stiffer law enforcement would presumably create, those risks were not being felt by drug dealers, or at least they weren't charging more money for the higher risk they were facing. And in the end, Peter says, more intense law enforcement did not seem to deter people from selling or using drugs. Peter has a lot of theories about why that might be. For one... Drug sellers are very poorly informed about the senses they face. Or, as Don Schatz, the Spingarn grad who used to sell drugs, put it to me. You know, when you out there doing crime, you don't look at, oh, I might get a lot of time if I sell these rocks. People wasn't looking at that, you know, because it's like, it's like everybody think they ain't going to never get caught. Ain't nobody going to study the, the law and say, OK, OK, I'm going to look up this crime and see how much it, it carries if I, if I do this. Nobody does that, you know. <laughs> but there's still this historical mystery we're left with. Because even if there's no evidence that tougher law enforcement has been able to successfully interrupt the supply of drugs or bring down the price, the fact is crack use has become less of a problem than it used to be. Since 1988, the percentage of Americans who reported using crack in the past year has fallen by almost half. And most of the people who still report using it are older, people who likely got hooked long ago. When it comes to teenagers, ages 12 to 17, in the latest survey from 2017, almost no one reported using crack. 0.1%. So if it wasn't the tough-on-drug-crimes approach... What was it? Well, Keith Jackson's classmates, the students of Spingarn High School who had family or neighbors addicted to crack, they have some thoughts. Carrie Bridges told me this story. I remember when I was growing up, because the epidemic was so high, 
And I had an older brother and I was sitting in the room and I said, you know, I think I want to try crack one day. And he popped me so hard upside my head. I think I saw stars. And he was like, don't you ever let me <laughs> say that again. And I was like, I just want to know why they're, you know, everybody's so addicted to it. They won't, you know, why they're. And he was like, don't you ever say that. And I was probably 12. So I didn't really know any better. But that pop he gave me was like, oh, OK. And it wasn't just the pop from her brother. In all these different ways, crack developed a stigma for Carrie. She was surrounded by so much crack use in her own family and beyond that it worked almost like a vaccine. Carrie says she saw what crack could do and said to herself, that, that is not for me. It was a constant reminder of what I did not want to do and who I did not want to be. And not only my mom, there were other People in the neighborhood that we would see, you know, we would walk, you would see them hanging out in the alleys. It was just a, it was a deterrent. Like, it's right here in your face. So you can either go that path or you can go a different path. Carrie went a different path. She never touched crack. In fact, she was kind of straight-laced in high school, in the band, part of the anti-drug student club. She went to college, now she's a teacher. David Magruder, the guy on the Spin Garden basketball team, who also happens to be a teacher now, David says growing up around crack had a deterrent effect on him, too. I never personally used crack because we had so many depictions of it. You saw it 20 times in a day. I always knew what it could do and what those effects could be. And that was enough to deter me for a lifetime. I'm never doing that. And David says... He never did. And the stigma that crack developed for David and Carrie, that happened to a lot of people in neighborhoods where crack hit the hardest. This was a time, I remember, when it was popular to diss someone by telling them, you're on crack. Crack quickly developed a reputation in the neighborhoods it hit hardest for being something that made you crazy, something to stay away from. And drug market experts say it's exactly that phenomenon that actually plays a role in how most drug epidemics end. Peter Reuter from the University of Maryland says most drug epidemics rise and fall, kind of like the rise and fall of a contagious disease. In the early stages of a drug epidemic, what is conspicuous are all the pleasures of the drug. And then over time, people see the harms that the drug causes, and more and more people see those harms and become, in effect, inoculated against the drug. So the infection rate goes down. I mean, that's the very simple model. That's not to say that use of a particular drug will completely go away after an epidemic dies down. Some of those who got hooked during the epidemic will stay hooked, and some new people will try it. But Peter says historically, in every drug epidemic, marked by a sudden spike in the rate of new users trying a drug, inevitably, that rate goes down after a certain amount of time as a new generation of potential new users sees the harms of the drug playing out around them. Different drug epidemics take different amounts of time to burn themselves out. With prescription painkillers, it's taken a while for people to see the harmful effects. But in the case of crack, the infection rate went down pretty quickly, Peter says. In crack, you basically have an epidemic that is exhausted within maybe three years. That is... Within three years, the number of new users has gone back pretty close to the base level before the epidemic started. 
That's what seemed to play out in most cities across the country, Peter says. The number of new users finding their way to crack would peak in any given city and then fall after a few years. And that's because the harms of frequent crack use became conspicuous very quickly, and crack use was concentrated in a small number of communities. It was predominantly an inner-city drug. And in those communities, crack users quickly became identified as people who were living very impoverished lives, impoverished in multiple dimensions. And what those people, who were still struggling with crack addiction, even after the epidemic had waned, what they needed most is not heavy law enforcement cracking down on the drug supply and locking up hundreds of thousands of young people of color in the process. At least, that's what Peter has concluded, after studying the effects of supply-side drug enforcement for more than 30 years. What drug addicts need is help. Treating, or at least managing, their addiction. Well, I'm going to sound as pedestrian as a public health person, but I believe that we can, by expanding and improving treatment, substantially reduce the demand for the drugs that cause us the most problem, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine. Treatment, even not very good treatment, which is the treatment that's generally available, makes a difference, and we can manage this problem, which is all we ever do with social problems. We can manage this problem better by focusing on the demand side. When Peter told me he thinks focusing on the demand for drugs rather than the supply is the best tool to deal with epidemics like crack, it sounded almost like a confession. I mean, I'm quite uncomfortable about saying that. Yeah, why are you uncomfortable with saying with saying that? Well, because that's what I've, I've spent most of my career studying the supply side. <laughs> And he's not the only one who's become disillusioned about going after the supply side. That is, going after drug dealers. Even some of the law enforcement people I talked to, the people who were making the arrests, had some uneasiness looking back at things. I talked to one of the cops involved in Keith Jackson's case. He's retired now, but he worked in drug enforcement, often undercover, for decades. He didn't want to use his name for personal safety reasons. He said he's put so many people behind bars. He has a lot of potential enemies. So I'll call him Charlie. Charlie told me when he was going after drug dealers like Keith Jackson, he believed he was doing a service. Yeah, my goal was to help try to get the drugs off the street. If I could lock up a couple of people, if I could seize the drugs, that stopped some drugs from getting in the streets, somebody's that stopped somebody from getting high on it. Uh, I know I couldn't get it all, but I stopped some drug dealer from selling. Charlie and I talked for a while in a park one day about his job, about how he felt about mandatory minimum sentences for drugs. He told me his role was not to judge the laws, but to enforce them. If that's the law, that's the law. But then when he was about to go, climbing into his car, Charlie reminded me once more that he didn't want to use his real name, and to explain why, he told me this story. I mean, I, I have gone to football games, and someone has, how you doing? I said, how you doing? I don't remember. He said, you don't remember me? I said, no. He said, you took 10 years of my life away from me. I asked Charlie how he felt in that moment, looking at this guy he'd helped put away for 10 years, who still remembered him decades later. And I felt bad 
Now you say, how do I feel? I felt bad him coming to me. I took 10 years of his life for some crack. I brought up the fact that today, especially when it comes to the opioid crisis, there's a growing movement among politicians to emphasize treatment rather than law enforcement. And Charlie looked at me. They should have been saying that back in the 80s. We need to help these addicts. They should have been saying the same thing back in the 80s. And you didn't hear a lot of that back then? I I don't think so. It occurred to me that this is pretty much what Carrie Bridges, Keith Jackson's classmate, whose family struggled with crack, has been thinking all her life about how to handle drug epidemics. My focus was never to be on the people that are selling drugs. It was, the focus should have been on the people that were using because if there's no demand, there's no need to supply. So it was always more, we need to do whatever we need to do to get people off of drugs. And Carrie says, for people like her mom and her uncle, there weren't many options. There wasn't any, we're going to send you away to rehab and you can go to California and stay at this luxury place where they'll teach you how to meditate. And no, they didn't have that. She compares that to the way she hears people talk about the opioid crisis now. They're addicted and it's a disease and we need to get them some help. Okay, but we didn't need to get them any help years ago? Okay, I was just wondering. So, as a Black woman in these United States, like, what were you doing 20, 30 years ago when when it was a problem then? But it wasn't a problem because they couldn't identify. It wasn't until it stretched over different demographics, a different socioeconomic class, and then it it became a problem. But it's always been a problem. So, like, right now, we're like, oh, that's been a problem. Like, you're, you're new to this. We're not. Helping drug users rather than locking up small time dealers, these are lessons about how to deal with a drug epidemic that someone like Carrie Bridges has come to know in her bones after she watched so many of her peers, her friends, and family turn into the collateral damage of the war on drugs. They're conclusions that drug researchers like Peter Reuter have come to after studying the data for over 30 years. But it's still worth asking whether we, as a country, have really learned anything from the war on crack. What's changed and what hasn't as we deal with a new drug epidemic, the biggest one we've ever faced? Next time, we go to the epicenter of the opioid epidemic and talk with people who are still in its grips. Just looking back through like a yearbook and seeing how many people that I went to school with, how many people are dead from drug overdose. That's it for this episode of The Uncertain Hour. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next time with more stories about the things we fight a lot about, but usually know just a little about. This episode of The Uncertain Hour was reported by me, Chrissy Clark. The Uncertain Hour is produced by me and Caitlin Esch, along with associate producer Peter Balanon-Rosen, production assistant Annie Reese, and digital producer Tony Wagner. Mixing and sound design by Jake Gorski. Additional production help from Lyra Smith. Our podcast is edited by the incredible Catherine Winter. Sitara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand at Marketplace. Deborah Clark is the senior vice president and general manager. Special thanks to Nancy Fargali, who helped bring this podcast into the world. 
Thanks to the George H.W. Bush Presidential Library Center and the Vanderbilt Television News Archive for providing some of the archival footage you heard in this episode. For more Uncertain Hour, photos, and more stories from the war on drugs, check out uncertainhour.org. We just posted a look back at a bunch of wild anti-drug PSAs that aired in the 80s, up to the horror movie-style ads of today. You can also follow us on Twitter at Marketplace. I'm at Christiania Clark. Thank you.